Well, like I said, we're going to try and, for the most part, pick up from where we left off and carry on through with this Doctrines of Grace study. At the same time, I figured you know, we've been away for this study for technically over a month. And so we're, as we get back up to speed, I think it, it maybe merits a, one of those quick little reviews that I do so periodically of just where have we been so far? What have we covered to get us back to, you know, we're, we're, we're ready to go. And so if you remember this whole study, I think most of you have been here from the beginning, but if you haven't, this whole study on Wednesday nights, we're trying to get to the bottom of this question, what is God's role and man's role in salvation? Is God alone responsible for man's salvation, or does God cooperate with man? Does man play a decisive part in his own salvation, or is salvation a work of God's grace from start to finish? Does God actually save people, or does he enable people to save themselves? How much human effort is involved in salvation? How much divine effort is involved in salvation? And also, who chooses who? Do we choose to believe in God, or does God choose us first? So, like, huge questions, age-old questions, and our, our intention and throughout the past and the future of these Wednesday nights is to try and answer them all, fundamentally figuring out that question, what is God's role and man's role in salvation? Now, Christians have differed answering these questions for a long time. But today there are basically two camps, Arminianism and Calvinism. And we've fleshed these out thoroughly. Arminians essentially believe that man's will is the deciding factor in salvation, whereas Calvinists believe that God's grace is the deciding factor in salvation. And more specifically, the differences between these two groups or or positions is really summarized under five points. On the Calvinism side, these five points go by the acronym TULIP. And we've been roughly organizing this study along these lines, going through these five points. That the TULIP stands for the T-U-L-I-P, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and then the perseverance of the saints. Calvinists believe that God's grace is completely sovereign in man's salvation, So these five points are sometimes referred to as the doctrines of grace. And so it's been the intention of this study to explore these five points on both sides and understand what the Bible says about God's role and man's role in salvation. Now, we're of the Calvinistic persuasion here at this church, but the goal of this study is not just to to feed you the, the party line on what to believe. Rather, we're just trying to let Scripture speak for itself and and tie everything we believe to God's word. You should be able to back up everything you, you say you believe to scripture, yet I find most people can't do that on both sides of this old debate. So we're trying to, to fix that. Just what does the Bible say? Let's just study the Bible and try and find some answers. Now, so far we've covered the first two points and we're well underway into the third point of these five points of Calvinism and Arminianism, looking at both sides. We've looked at total depravity and seen how the fall and uh, original sin have affected the human condition, namely that now we're born dead in our trespasses and sins. We have a will, but our will is not described as free in Scripture, but bound, enslaved to sin and Satan. 
Therefore, mankind doesn't have the freedom to choose God because he doesn't have the ability. He's dead. He's lost. If God didn't intervene, no one would ever be saved on their own. Thankfully, God did intervene, which leads to the second point we covered on unconditional election. Election refers to God's act of choosing some for salvation. And remember, both Arminians and Calvinists believe in election. It's just a thoroughly biblical concept. They both believe in it, that God chooses some, not all, for salvation. Arminians, though, believe in conditional election, that God, by using his foreknowledge, he chooses those whom he foresaw would believe of their own free will. And so we really do the choosing. God just, he sees who would believe in him, and then he elects them in, I guess you could say, retrospect, even though it's before time. Really, we spent a long time exposing this view. It has no support in Scripture, and it is riddled with holes, and we reject it. Rather, God's word is crystal clear that he chose people based on his will. Not our will, but his will. His will is supreme. God's election is unconditional, meaning it's not conditioned on anything in us. It's just his good will, his pleasure. God, according to his own hidden will, chose to set his special love on some, and he elected them to inherit his plan of salvation. We spent many, many more weeks establishing that to Scripture, and it's, it's actually overwhelming when you really start to get into it. It's, it's everywhere. And really, so what I just summarized there as we get back up to speed, that was like six months of what we've been through. What is this, Lesson 19? So we've covered some ground here. We've gone through a lot of stuff. The goal this Wednesday night is to take our time and just spend the time to to flesh these out. Everything so far is online, so you can catch yourself back up to speed if you've missed stuff. But now we're into this third point, which concerns the atonement. Speaking of God's plan of salvation... He sent his son into the world to conquer sin and Satan and death itself. He sent Jesus to redeem this fallen, lost mankind. But this begs just a huge question, namely, for whom did Jesus do all this? For whom did he die? That's the the big question of this third point of limited atonement versus unlimited atonement. For whom did he die? For whom did he die? Did he go to the cross? On whose behalf did he make atonement? Remember, we've actually in previous lessons studied the atonement, what Jesus actually accomplished on the cross. We use the word atonement as an umbrella term to describe his, his ransom, his redemption, his reconciliation, his propitiation, bearing God's wrath for sinners. It's going to be a, a big question then, like, who do you do this for? For all people? Without exception, everybody, or only for those whom were elected before time. Now, naturally, Arminians and Calvinists, they answer these questions differently. And so the divide continues. And like I said, the divide is described by the two terms now is unlimited atonement versus limited atonement. Those are the basic terms, although, you know, they go by different labels sometimes. But that, that's historically the basic terms. Last time, Lesson 18, we gave a more detailed overview of these two views of the extent of the atonement. And even what we covered then, I'll give you the the two-minute recap of that as well. Last time was that the big-picture overview setting up the whole debate. So Arminians hold to what's called unlimited atonement. 
And you can tell by, by the title, they believe that Jesus died for all people without exception. God loves the world. God desires all to be saved. So it's only fitting that God sent Jesus to die for the sins of the whole world. Not everyone is saved, though, because the atonement of Christ must be appropriated and applied by faith. Now, most Calvinists, in contrast, hold to limited atonement. You can probably guess now by, by limited. A lot of people reject that term, but you get what it's saying. Limited atonement, meaning that Jesus died for all people without distinction. Or more specifically, Jesus came to earth and he died on the cross to redeem the elect, to secure a bride for himself. And those are the ones for whom he, he gave his life and made atonement. Now, it should be noted, some Calvinists actually don't believe that. And they're known as four-point Calvinists. You ever heard of that term before? You know, talking about these five points, tulip. Some drop out that middle point, and they're known as four-point Calvinists. We'll talk about them later. Uh, but they, they hold to a form of unlimited atonement. We'll explain all that to come. But anyway, we, we kind of framed this discussion last time. In lesson 18, if you remember, I actually prefaced the previous lesson by saying I was hesitant to even start because we were about to take such a long break. And, you know, it doesn't really do well for a study when you, you set it all up and then take take a month off. But anyway, hopefully you're getting back up to speed. You're remembering where we left off. Now we're, we're back and we're going to just go to try and settle the question, figure out what the Bible says about this this third issue here on the atonement. For whom did Jesus die? When it comes to the doctrines of grace, this is quite a divisive topic. It, it, it shouldn't really be, to be honest. Uh, but historically, it, it has been. We just want to see what, what Scripture says. What, what does the Bible teach? Does the Bible really answer the question, for whom did Jesus die? And then if so, what's the answer? Now, we're not going to try and answer this question by popular vote or modern sensibilities. If that were the case, everyone would pretty much believe in unlimited atonement. You know, in a culture that has eviscerated God of his, his wrath and his justice and left only his love, but then even modified that to this unbiblical, just sentimental type of love. Most people, they can't tolerate even the thought that Jesus would only die for the elect. These are the same people who also can't tolerate the thought of election itself, or even hell for that matter. But we've seen the Bible clearly teaches election and hell. Our only concern here, though, is just, just to find out what, what the Bible really teaches. Like, can you show me a chapter and a verse and make your case from Scripture, and then we'll believe. that That's our only goal, and I trust you know that. We've made that clear throughout. We're going to do our best to evaluate both sides be fair, let them speak for themselves, and then measure everything against Scripture and see what the Bible teaches. We're going to start today, this is going to be several weeks, of course, but we're going to start today beginning with the unlimited atonement side. Now, yeah, I introduced you in brief to unlimited atonement in the previous lesson, but today we're really going to try and spend our time to get really a more in-depth understanding, just what do they believe? What are they really saying about the atonement that Jesus died for everyone. What do they really mean by that? We have to start with the place of understanding. We're not trying to build a, a straw man. Like, what do they really teach? What do they really believe? And then why? 
How do they support this belief? What, what do they say to kind of prove, like, this is why we believe what we believe? That's what we're going to study today, just to understand unlimited atonement. And then we'll go on from there. So you can see in your notes a uh, uh, first section. And if you guys didn't get notes, I think Rod has some in the back for you. But unlimited atonement defined. We'll start off by defining or just getting some bearings here for unlimited atonement. So once again, unlimited atonement is the view espoused by primarily Arminianism. It's sometimes referred to as general atonement or universal atonement. And in essence, they believe that Jesus died for all people without exception. Everyone ever born, everyone ever conceived, Jesus died for that person. That's, that's the gist of it. And that, that part's not hard to understand. The atonement was intended and designed for all people. In God's mind, when he's, he's planning this out, he planned to send Jesus to die for every single person that ever lived at all. Arminius himself stated that, quote, Christ died for all men and for every individual, end quote. Just making it crystal clear what they mean, that whatever Jesus did on the cross, whatever it was, they believe it was for everybody without exception. Logically, this belief stems from God's love for the world and his desire to see none lost, as Arminians would contend. God truly loves every person in the same way, and he desires that none would perish in the same way. Therefore, it stands to reason that God would send Jesus to provide salvation for everyone in the same way. Historically, this is what Arminius' followers put forth in the five articles of the Remonstrance in 1610. If that just sounds like, what, what did you just say? You have to go back to Lesson 1 and Lesson 2, where we gave the historical background to this whole thing. Calvin, Arminius, rather. They didn't start at all, but their names became the labels for these two sides. And Arminius, his followers, after he died, they put together these, these core beliefs. They started the five points of Arminianism, really. And so their second point really defines what they believe about unlimited atonement. It's actually in your notes. You can read along as I, as I read. They say that, quote, that Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, died for all men and for every man, so that he has obtained for them all, by his death on the cross, redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Yet that no one actually enjoys the forgiveness of sins except the believer, end quote. And then they appeal to, like John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish. And so God is pictured as having this, this general love for the whole world. And therefore he sent Jesus to die for the whole world and to actually pay for the sins of the whole world. However, not everyone is saved by Christ's atonement. Only those who believe receive the benefits of that atonement. And Armenians would be quick to add that only those who believe of their own free will would receive the benefits of that atonement. And so, again, for Armenians, the deciding factor in one's salvation is man's free will. often comes back to that for them. So, in effect, though, Jesus died to make people savable. 
He died to make salvation available to all. He didn't actually secure the salvation of anyone in particular. He just made it available to everybody. Now, anybody can be saved. But he didn't save anyone on the cross. just made a provision of salvation. But unless people choose to believe, they'll never avail of his atoning work. So, I'll point out some Arminians, not all, they believe that Jesus, he actually made propitiation. Remember, that word means to bear the wrath of God. He, he really satisfied and, and put away every sin of every person on the cross, with the exception of unbelief. And so, they believe that after the cross or because of the cross, everyone on the planet has already been forgiven of every sin they've ever committed except for the sin of unbelief. And therefore, the only sin that God will judge you by, the only sin which damns you, is unbelief. We'll talk more about that later, and I'll point out most Arminians, though, have come to reject that for reasons we'll get into later. And so instead, though, they believe that Jesus on the cross, he wasn't dying for sins in particular. Like, he wasn't dying for anyone's specific sins, He's just dying for sin in general. He's making this general atonement. And it, it can be, it's available for anyone. For no one in particular, but for everyone. And so it's like the death of Jesus on the cross. He opened up this bank account filled with infinite righteousness, infinite forgiveness. And anyone now can come and access it and be saved. He didn't open it for anyone in particular. Just, it's just there now. And you can be saved if you go to it. Christ's atonement, therefore, is more of a potential atonement. He made a provision for all people, but he actually secured the salvation for no one on the cross, no one in particular. Again, the Arminian view stops short of universalism, which means everybody will be saved. Because although they contend Jesus, he reconciled everyone on the cross. He redeemed everyone. He ransomed Everyone. He made propitiation for everyone. But no one actually receives these benefits unless they choose to believe. And so in the end, they picture like God through, cross, uh, through Christ on the cross. He prepared this great feast and invited everyone to the table. It's there. But only those who come will eat, will live forever. So that's the, the basics of what Arminians teach about unlimited atonement. And you guys always can stop me for questions or raise your hand for questions or comments if, if you need to. So anytime. Now we're going to move into unlimited atonement supported. So that's what they believe. That's the, the gist of it. I trust you get it. I mean, it, it's not hard to understand what they're saying. Why do they say that? Why do they believe that? There's three basic lines of reasoning they use to support this notion of unlimited atonement. And so let's cover these. The first gets the most attention by far. And that is, number one, unlimited atonement matches the universal language of Scripture. I'll say that again for you note-takers. Unlimited atonement, it matches the universal language of Scripture. And so first and foremost, Armenians appeal to you know, all the passages in the Bible where universal language is used in connection with Christ's atonement. And I see some heads. If you're looking for handouts or notes, if anyone is, Rod has them. I'll just mention that again 
if anyone needs them. Now, notable are the passages where Jesus is said to have died for all or the world. It's like the key words, all or the world. Arminians will often build their case by simply listing off these texts and then appealing to the plain reading of Scripture. They'll say, hey, look at all these verses that say Jesus died for the world. Jesus died for all. And just say, it's obvious. I mean, it just, it just says it. He died for the world. That means everybody without exception. Case closed. You, you'll hear that. Now, we surveyed such passages in the previous lesson, but just for, for review, I'll give you some of the passages most frequently cited again here. You have them in your notes, but I'll, I'll read through these a little more briskly. First, you have a category of passages that talk about Jesus dying for the world. Like John one twenty nine, where Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 3, 14-18, of course John 3.16 is in there that says, Whoever believes in him will have eternal life, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. It's obviously a big one. John 4, 42, Jesus is called the Savior of the world. Romans eleven fifteen says, speaking of Israel, for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Just talking about you know, the reconciliation of the world. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That's a big one as well. 1 John 2.2, 2, that Christ is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. That's what You'll find that in their top three every time, that Christ uses a key word, propitiation, not just for our sins, but for those of the whole world. That's universal language in connection with Christ's atonement. And then 1 John 4, 14, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So these are just some verses that connect Christ's atoning death to the world. And so they will say like, well, that's it. I mean, the world, that means everybody. That, that has to mean every single person without exception. And so there you have it. In addition, they'll point out to point verses where it says Jesus died for all. Key word being all or, or everyone. Isaiah 53, 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The verse pictures all of us being sinners. And God took all of our sins and laid it on Jesus. And so they're, they're picturing, well, that, that's all of us. Everyone's a sinner, right? And so everyone's sins must have been laid on Jesus. Romans 5.18, it says, So then as through one transgression, Adam's sin, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, Christ's death, there resulted justification of life to all men. All men uh, gain justification of life in Jesus. 
2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 15, they, they mention this often. It says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all. There, I mean, there it is, right? One died for all. Therefore, all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. First Timothy 2, 4-6 You'll hear again often, it says that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all at the testimony given at the proper time. 1 Timothy 4.10, for it is this, we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the savior of all men, especially of believers, and so forth. So there's a few more verses. You can read some of those on your own. But again, so Arminians will, will appeal to these verses and simply say, case closed. They're building their case for unlimited atonement, that Jesus died for, for everybody who ever lived and First and foremost, they'll just say, look at all these verses that use universal language in connection with the atonement. Bunch of verses, Jesus dying for the world. Bunch of verses, Jesus dying for all. And oftentimes they'll just say, hey, case closed. That's it. It's just, it's obvious. It's the plain reading of scripture and just leave it at that. So that's the first big support that they'll give for unlimited atonement. The second Argument or support they'll give for why they believe in unlimited atonement. Number two, in your notes, they'll say that unlimited atonement enables the free offer of the gospel. That unlimited atonement enables the free offer of the gospel. Now, the Bible makes clear that the good news of the gospel and the offer of salvation, they're to be made to all people, without exception, right? And you believe that, a trust? This is something that actually both Calvinists and Arminians believe that everyone should receive the gospel, without exception. Everyone born, hey, they should receive the offer of salvation and the good news of Christ. Arminians will point out key verses that reinforce that in the Bible, it affirms the gospel is truly offered to all and should be offered to all. So you have a few more verses here. I'll, I'll read and summarize some of these for you. You know, Isaiah 45, verse 22, where God says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. God himself is calling out to everyone to, to turn to him and be saved. Jesus did the same thing, Matthew eleven twenty eight. He says to, to, to the crowd, you know, Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Anyone who's weary is invited to come. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. John 6.37, Jesus said, Him that comes I will not cast out. And then you have many verses that, that talk about whoever comes, whosoever comes. Like Acts 2.21, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's open to everyone. Acts 10.43, whosoever believes shall receive forgiveness. Who's going to receive forgiveness? Whoever believes. 
And so it's true. Scripture does offer and, and present the offer uh, of the gospel to all people. And there, there should be a universal call to the world by, by the church of the good news of Christ. We're told to, to take it to everybody without exception. We affirm that. The difference, though, is that Arminians will contend that such a universal offer of the gospel is disingenuous if the atonement is not universal. In other words, if Jesus didn't really die for everyone, you can't genuinely tell everyone, hey, you can be saved by believing in Jesus. Because what if he didn't really die for them? What if they're not part of the elect? It's, it's, not, it's not legitimate. They say there, there's really no basis to offer salvation to all people the way Scripture does unless Jesus really provided atonement for all people so that they could actually be saved. And so they will say the only way this universal offer of salvation is legitimate is if unlimited atonement is true. Do you get that? That's the second big argument they'll use to support why they believe in unlimited atonement, that Jesus died for everybody without exception. The third argument they'll give Number three, unlimited atonement upholds the love of God. It upholds the love of God. The more you understand you know, these two sides of this age-old debate about God's role and man's role in salvation, today they go by the labels Calvinism and Arminianism, but they go way back. We, we've learned this before. But the more you understand what today is called Arminianism, you understand that what lies at the very root and core of this movement is the desire to defend and uphold the love of God, which itself is admirable that there's nothing wrong with that. Of course, you know, that's a good thing. We would take issue with the way they do it. But, you know, no one's going to argue with that per se. Arminians, however, they'll say that they, they contend that God loves all people in the same way. God desires all people to be saved in the same way. And there are some verses they cite to the same effect. And they take all the universal language to the fullest extent. And so, for example, Ezekiel 33, verse 11, which says, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they would turn and live. Or 1 Timothy 2, 4, Saying that God, we read this before, that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then 2 Peter 3, 9, that, that God is not wishing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance, right? There's some key verses talking about God's, in some sense, God has this desire for all to believe, for all to be saved. So in Ar Arminian theology, God doesn't play favorites. He doesn't choose anybody. They choose him. One way or another, God's will is just he wants to save everybody. But in the end, in Arminian theology, you get to the end of it and you find that God's will is subservient to man's will. It's just this necessary outcome. God loves all people. God wants to save all people. But they believe that man must still choose to believe of his own free will to be saved. And so, you know, God, he went so far as to send Jesus to die for everybody and provide salvation for everybody, offer it to everybody. These actions are taken as the extreme evidences of God's love for all people. 
even though not all are saved, but, but that's on man, not God. God. God wants to save everybody. And he went so far to do it that he even sent Jesus to die for everybody. But you still have to make that decision to believe. And as much as God loves you and wants you to be saved and not spend eternity in hell, he won't change your will. He won't influence or affect your will or like even make you believe even because he upholds our human libertarian free will above all else. And, and they, Armenians will contend that God designed it this way, that he made us to have this free will, and then he kind of steps back and respects it. He chose to do it. He didn't have to. But after that, you know, God's not going to overturn our will. What you get, though, in the end is that man's will thwarts God's will. He wants everyone to be saved, but not everyone wants to be saved, and so God just lets them all go to hell. I mean, he did, he did his part. He sent Jesus. He died for everybody, gave everyone a chance even though not everyone hears the gospel. We'll get to that later. But then he, he stops right there. He won't go any further. He won't, you know, like make people born again against their will and just make them believe so that they're saved. God stops short of affecting our will. That's just the essence of Arminianism and their contention of this libertarian free will, this ultimate free will. But for them, though, from that perspective, if you are going to suggest that Jesus did not actually die for all people without exception, they can never accept that. It just undermines the very foundation of Arminian theology, which is the love of God. And that, by nature, is universal. It's the same. God doesn't have a special love for anybody. He loves everyone the same. And so that, that can just never be. So you will not find any Arminian, really by definition, that believes in limited atonement. They, they all, every single one, it's really, by definition in the system, believe in universe, or unlimited atonement, that Jesus on the cross, for whom did he die? Everyone. Everyone without exception. No exceptions. Everyone ever born and so forth. And so again, recap the major support they give. is all the universal language in the Bible applied to the atonement. Jesus died for the world. He died for all. This is some serious verses you have to contend with. The free offer of the gospel. It's only made legitimate by his universal death. And then thirdly, it's the only way to maintain the love of God, they would say. So, not quite done, but that's we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there when it comes to just Arminian theology. Again, today our, our simple goal is just we're reframing the discussion. We're getting back into this after a long break, talking about the atonement, trying to answer the question, for whom did Jesus die? And today we're looking at one side of it, Basically, the, the Armenian side, which states he died for everyone without exception, unlimited atonement. That's what they believe. That's why they believe it. So far, so good. Now, lastly, though, we'll just point out for our time tonight. I, I said earlier, you will never find an Armenian who believes in limited atonement. Right. It's an exclusive in that regard. You will. Uh, so basically, they, they won't switch sides in this issue. You will, however, interestingly, you will find Calvinists who do believe in unlimited atonement. So again, in general, well, you know, really, without exception, Arminians believe in unlimited atonement. Jesus died for everyone without exception. In general, the other side of this debate, you know, Calvinists, they in general believe in limited atonement, that he only died for the elect, However, you will find a segment of Calvinists on this issue only, 
they jump ship and they hold to unlimited atonement as well. So let's just finish and talk about this. You have a little section in your notes on four-point Calvinism. And uh, it goes by other names, but this is kind of like the most common one and uh, easy to understand in a sense. Now, again, I pointed this out in the previous lesson, but we'll just talk about it a little bit further here. Namely that this position here, unlimited atonement, it's not held exclusively by Arminians. That, again, there's a segment of Calvinists who subscribe to unlimited atonement. They're known as four-point Calvinists, you can call them, because they basically they drop the L from TULIP. Again, we're using this acronym TULIP. It's been used for a long time to describe that the five points of Calvinism in contrast with the five points of Arminianism. The L in TULIP is limited atonement. But these guys don't believe that. They believe in unlimited atonement. So they drop the L. So they're four-point Calvinists. They, they don't hold to all five points. Now, as a side note, you'll never find a three-point Calvinist or a two-point all the others are necessary points. This is really the only issue where you'll find people on both sides, right here in the middle on the atonement, which is why I said earlier it's the most divisive issue. You just have a lot of people just all across the map on this one. And it's tricky, but we're going to get into it. Anyway, four-point Calvinists, they would agree that the atonement of Jesus was unlimited in scope, meaning it was meant for everyone. They would say that Jesus died for all people, without exception, everyone ever born. And they would agree with Arminians that on the cross, Jesus redeemed all people. He reconciled everyone to God. He ransomed the whole race, and he made propitiation for the sins of everyone on the cross. However, they agree that this atonement was provisional. He wasn't really dying for anyone in particular. But for everyone in general, he made a provision, this great provision of salvation, provision of atonement is provisional. And so he didn't effectively save anyone on the cross. Rather, his provisional atonement must be applied for you to be saved. And so they make a distinction, which is a distinction to be made, between atonement accomplished and atonement applied. Jesus on the cross, he accomplished atonement for everybody, they would say. It still has to be applied to you for you to be saved. We would agree with that. We'll talk more about that. But now let me explain to you the difference, though, between four-point Calvinists and Arminians, because they have a big difference. They're not totally the same. The difference comes into that application. They both believe that Jesus made this universal provision of atonement. He died for everybody. So atonement accomplished for everybody, they both believe. However, atonement applied, this is where they differ. How is that atonement applied to people? Both four-point Calvinists and Arminians, they limit the application of the atonement, right? Not everyone's saved. Not everyone receives this universal provision, right? But they explain how the atonement is limited differently. This is in your notes because it's kind of tricky, so you can read this little paragraph with me if you want. You know, who limits the application of the atonement? God or man? The Armenian believes man limits the application of the atonement by his own free will. 
either in accepting or rejecting the gospel. He chooses whether or not he's going to partake of Christ's provision. So man limits the atonement to the Arminian. The four-point Calvinist, however, believes that God limits the application of the atonement by his sovereign election. Now, they're still Calvinists. They still believe in unconditional election. And so they believe that actually God is the one who limits who receives this universal atonement, who it's applied to. The four-point Calvinist retains a high view of God's sovereignty and salvation. He simply believes that God made this unlimited provision of salvation for all people because he loves all and because he wants the gospel to be offered to all. Even though, however, God decreed by election that not all would receive the benefits of that unlimited provision. So if, if you're with me, I know this, we're getting into it, and there's going to be more to come, right? But if you're with me, they're still thoroughly Calvinistic. They just believe that God made this universal provision for everybody, even though God had decreed not everyone's going to receive it. Only the elect will receive it. So it's still Calvinistic, but they hold to an unlimited atonement. You with me? Nodding heads? Okay. The logic, we'll kind of end with this. The logic works like this for a four-point Calvinist. They believe that God first decreed to create mankind. So he's going to make everybody. Then God considered the fall of man, that everyone's going to fall into sin. So God determined to effect a plan of salvation whereby he's going to send his son to die on the cross to, to redeem mankind and make this provision of salvation for everybody. Everybody's going to fall into sin. So God has this plan. He's going to send Jesus to die for everybody so that everybody could be saved through the death on the cross. However, God then considered that man in his fallen state, he's not able to receive this offer of salvation. He's not able to choose God by faith because he's dead in sin. He's enslaved to sin and Satan. God knew that no one would believe on their own. Therefore, God then decided to elect some to receive the salvation by sovereign grace. God knew that if he didn't choose some, none would believe. And so he, he had determined to give Christ for the world. But then in his special love, he chose some who would actually receive it and be saved and that's election. And so to the four-point Calvinist, God's sovereign grace in salvation is upheld, while unlimited atonement is affirmed. And they likewise, in their support, they point to all the universal language passages, and they also believe that this is the only way that the gospel can legitimately be offered to all people. So that's, that's the second little category out there. Uh, the four-point Calvinists, and in many ways they overlap with Arminians when it comes to unlimited atonement. I think that's enough for tonight to just get you straight. Again, our goal is just to, to introduce you, to explain you, uh, to you the views on unlimited atonement and to, to offer their support. Uh, we just want to understand what they believe. And I'll say for Arminians that at least when it comes to this position, as opposed to conditional election, at least they have some verses that really seem to support it, right? Whichever side you land on, you have to make sense of a verse like John 3.16, which says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And so, you know, 
This is one case where we'll get into what we teach in a little bit. But I respect both sides of this debate. Both sides here, I believe, are trying to just account for the testimony of Scripture. But there's a lot that goes into it. Whichever side you land on, you've got to deal with you know, the universal language of the Bible and all these issues. We're going to start doing that next time. You know, the position of unlimited atonement is going to appeal to the majority of people. And you could say it's very politically correct, right? God loves everybody. But it's not without its flaws. It actually has some very serious flaws. And next time, so our next lesson, we're going to revisit unlimited atonement with a critical eye just to see how it holds up under examination. and Just see what are the arguments against it. And then we'll, of course, move on to the other view of limited atonement and do the same thing. We'll explain it, then we'll be critical of it, and then we'll try and make sense of the whole thing at the very end from Scripture. So that's where we're headed next. So hopefully this gets you set and uh, come back next week full of coffee because, you know, that's what we're getting Wednesday nights. You come here for, this is uh, at least now, doctrine, doctrines of grace. So, you know, we get after it here. But I trust that's why you're here. Well, anyway, let's go ahead and pray. We'll be done for tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, this study. And, you know, there's times we need to do this. We need to just dig into your word and, and dive into the depths and not just merely skim the surface, but really try and understand what, what your word says and about important issues. On the one hand, Lord, an issue like this for whom Christ died, that shouldn't divide us from our brethren, those who believe in the atonement, who believe in Christ. At the same time, Lord, this is an important question that you sent your son to conquer sin and Satan and death itself on the cross. How can we not want to know for whom he did this, for whom he he went to this cross? That's a very important question, and we don't want to shy away from it because it's hard. We want to just spend time to study, to search your depths. We pray you, you give us wisdom and understanding by the Holy Spirit to just keep studying humbly, and that we can cut it straight and understand uh, more about the atonement. All of this, Lord, leads to your greater glory. The, the better we understand truth and who you are and what you've done, the more we can thank you and glorify you for it. That's our desire to just lead to greater worship with our time in, in studying, that it changes our lives, not just a, an exercise of head knowledge, but this impacts how we appreciate the atonement. There's no greater subject, so we pray you bless uh, the remainder of our time together and Thank you for this night. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.